All right, if you have your Bibles, why don't you open up to Ephesians 2. Uh, We're just going to read a few verses here before we get into uh, this morning's message. So how many of you, um, who can tell me, I should say, what, uh, what series we're in right now? Anyone? What's the first one? Presence. What's the second one? Formation. What's the third one? Witness. All right. Yes. Way to go, Gold Star Val. Get you it after. <laughs> All right. Ephesians two. And you, it says, that's that's us. It's all of us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We're going to stop there. And, you know, before I go any further, let's, uh, let's pray together and uh, welcome the Lord. Father, I want to thank you that all of your word is true. The whole counsel of your word is true. And Lord, we need all of it. And Lord, as we talk this morning about sin and disobedience, Lord, and the problem of it that all of us are infected with, Lord, we want to ask that you would give us your grace and your mercy. Lord, we want to receive this as truth. We want to come and understand this, Lord. We want to look at this for our own lives and how it influences and affects us. And so, Jesus, we're asking that you'd be with us. Holy Spirit, we invite you here. We, we recognize that, that this topic is not something that we are prone to go to a lot. And so, Lord, we ask for your, your kindness and we ask for your wisdom as we move through this this morning. Amen. So there was a, a New York Times article a while ago that um, was written by a lady who she, uh, it was kind of like an op-ed, but she talked, she, the, artic- the title of the article was Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. And she, uh, this author, she was raised in a very legalistic home. Um, in fact, she wrote a book about it. And, and in fact, when you, when you kind of look a little bit into her, the details of her life, it wasn't just a legalistic home, it was an abusive home. And so... Um, you know, sin and, and the church were kind of used in a, in a way that wasn't good. But she, because of all that, she wanted to raise her kids without the concept of sin. Didn't even want to bring it into their lives. And so she only wanted to teach her kids to care about justice and caring about people's rights and, and being good people, right? Being good citizens. Um, and because she, her belief is that this life and what we're living is all that there is. And so how we live on this earth. This is all that we have, and so we need to care about that. And so uh, this happened for a number of years. She was, she was leading her kids in this way, and then one year they went to this kind of Christmas market with a Dickens theme to it in, uh, in New York, and 
she was with her nine-year-old, and, and all of a sudden this group comes by in the Christmas market, and they're yelling, uh, gin is sin, gin is sin. I guess it's part of Dickens. And her daughter looks at her, and she says, Mommy, what is sin? And she said at that moment, she felt so proud as a mother because she had gotten to her daughter almost to double digits and she truly didn't even understand what that word was. So I I reference that as an example because talking about sin, discussing sin, preaching about sin is not very trendy these days. This, this is not something that you're uh, going to hear and, and you're going to get a lot of talk about in our culture. The word, the, the concept, the theology of sin is rejected by culture. It's disappearing from the church. And it's, it's even becoming taboo in the home. We do not talk about it. And, and I wonder even... As I was thinking about that this week and, and even in, in the last several weeks, I wondered like, how many of our children actually have a clear understanding of the concept of sin? I, I wonder that because it does not get talked about in the culture at all. And, and so do we talk about the problem that it presents in our lives, the destructive nature of sin, that reality of it, how many of us, even as adults, think about this? Really? And I wonder, maybe some of you kids are going, sin, sin, like, what, what, what really is sin? Is that like your social insurance number? Like, what is that? But we really don't talk about it much. So, now here's the question. Why, so why talk about sin? I mean, we, we sung a bunch about it this morning. There's a lot of, of stuff in, in what we're singing. What, why, why sing about it? Why talk about it? I, I thought we were talking about God's presence and, and formation into the way of Jesus, becoming more like Jesus. So why this talk about sin? Because formation is present in our lives. Meaning, we are all being formed into something. Every single one of us is being formed into something in us. And the Bible says that sin is our most serious problem that directly affects our relationship with God. There is no bigger of a problem that the human race has than sin. And yet we don't want to talk about it. To to understand our need for spiritual formation becoming more like Jesus, to to understand that, to really delve into this this issue of spiritual formation in our lives, we must understand the danger that sin presents for every single one of us. If there is no sin, if sin really isn't that big of an issue, if we can just sort of bypass it and minimize it and just, then why would there be the need for the cross. Why, why would we even care about the cross? Why would it be remotely important to think about that? That is perhaps the issue of sin 
And the fact that God came and had to die a brutal death on the cross is probably one of the most striking questions right now that is facing the Western church. And we're grappling with it. Because, see, we, we read those first three verses in Ephesians and then we, we stopped. And we stopped with being children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And you're probably like, but go on to verse 4. But God, right? Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Like, why aren't you going on to that, Paul? And I would say this, because it is to our own detriment if we move past the first three verses of Ephesians 2 too quickly. If we just sort of read that and buzz past it and go, let's get to the really good stuff. We need to look sin straight in the face. We need to understand the depth of depravity of sin if we are going to see the wonders and understand the magnitude of grace. Because if not, we really can actually make grace very cheap. When we understand how bad a situation is, it makes the solution that much sweeter. So let's talk about formation this morning and the problem of sin. That's my title. You know, I, re- I recall as a child, and this, I, this blows me away to think about this now, watching on public television, Billy Graham Crusades. Like, on public television in Canada, you had Billy Graham getting up and preaching openly, clearly about the problem of sin. He didn't mince words. He said it like it was. And people responded in hundreds, thousands of people responded to their need for Jesus. Think about that. That will never, ever happen today. As a culture, we no longer discuss sin. There's no serious conversation in our world, in our intellectual communities, that will even permit that we talk about sin anymore. We minimize it. We, we talk about little white lies, and we, we use other phrases to minimize it. We, we domesticate it. We say it's a mistake, or it's an error. Oh, my bad. You know, it's a disorder. It's an addiction. It's a tendency of mine. It's a personal opinion. It's, it's an act of liberation. It's a deconstructing. We are largely redefining, recategorizing, and remarketing sin. And we have. And the problem, one of the, the serious problems about eliminating sin in our world is that we misdiagnose problems caused by it then and end up prescribing the wrong antidote. This is what Dallas Willard says, speaking on sin. He says, one of the greatest obstacles to effective spiritual formation in Christ today is simple failure to understand and acknowledge the reality of the human situation as it affects Christians and non-Christians alike. We must start from where we really so the first three verses of Ephesians 2 
is the condition of every single person born into this world. This, what we read there, that is our condition. This is the effect of sin in our lives. And apart from the transforming power of God, that is the state that we will live in and we will function in for all of our lives. Sin presents a massive, massive problem when it comes to our spiritual formation and the extent to which we ignore it is to our own detriment. So I want to I talk this morning about why, why is sin such a problem? Why, why is that? And then two weeks from now, I want to look at where sin originated from, looking at original sin and sort of that, that idea from Scripture and the gift of formation in our lives. So we're going to have a break in between that. Maybe it'll be good to have a break from, from talking about sin. Uh, but we'll, we'll have Elmer Chen with us next Sunday. So. But this morning, let's talk about why, why is sin such a problem? What, what, what is the big deal about it? Like, why, why talk about it? The first reason is because it disrupted God's ideal world. God hates sin. And that, that right there, actually, we could just stop. Like We could just stop the message right there. God hates sin. That's enough of a reason that it's a big, big issue. Let's wrap this up. But we need to understand this maybe a little bit deeper. Because sin disrupted the world that we were meant to thrive in. Sin creates a world of pain and suffering. We see the evidence of it everywhere. Everywhere. Where God desired life, sin brought death. Where God desired flourishing, sin brings destruction. Where God desired peace, sin brings pain. Where God desired joy, sin brings sorrow. Where God desired truth, sin brings lies. And you could go on. There's a whole bunch of things you could look at the contrast of what God desired and what sin has done. But it, it changed our very nature. It says here in Ephesians, Paul says, sin made us children of wrath. That's, that's not a particular group of people that Paul was talking about there. Paul's talking about, this is you, this is us. This is, this is the condition that we're in. What does that mean? Well, there's actually a progression in these verses of sin. Paul actually uses three different words to talk about sin here. He first talks about transgression. And the word there, it means, it's talking about a, a veering away, a, a wandering off, a deviation, if you will. That, that that's what sin is. And then he goes, he talks about the transgression. That, and, and then he uses another word for sin there. In verse 1, where it means to miss the mark or a failure to obey. So you just, there's, there's something that's, that's, that's gone awry. And then the third word he uses to talk about disobedience, when he talks about the sons of disobedience, it's talking about a willful craving of sin. Actually being obstinate. That now there's this movement where now we're in opposition to God. In direct, willful opposition so this, this is the state of every single person born into this world. Paul's not talking about a specific group of people here. He's not thinking about a specific group. 
It's a state that is in complete and utter rebellion to God. It's a place of anti-shalom. It's a place of no peace. So that's the first reason why sin is such a problem. Second reason why sin is such a problem. It destroys relationships. It's four relationships that it destroys. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship to the world. So first it destroys, and and it's, it's progressive. First it destroys our relationship with God. We're meant, we're meant to have, as people, we were meant to have communion with God. And so sin is anything that disturbs, distorts this relationship. Sin is death, primarily because it separates us from God. Paul talks about it later in Ephesians 2, he talks about it in Ephesians 4, how we're alienated from the life of God. This is, we were meant to have this communion. For, for the, we were meant to be the one, we were meant to be an image bearer of him. And so we go from that, the one whose image we were meant to bear, and we turn into something else. Sin destroys our relationship to God and destroys our relationship with God. Secondly, it destroys our relationship with ourselves because as I said, we're meant, our purpose is that we're meant to be image bearers. Genesis 1, we are made in God's image. That was God's intention, his design for us as his people. And so sin keeps us in a state apart from our purpose and calling. We become less than ourselves. We actually become, we're separated. Sin separates us from our true self, the one that we were meant to be. And sin is the thing that takes us away from that. And one of the, the telltale signs that we all deal with that from the very beginning is that we feel shame. We deal with shame. And the journey of, of formation, one of, one of the journeys of becoming more like Jesus is moving from this false self birthed in sin where we, we're moving in our lives to wholeness and to healing We're coming into who we're meant to be in Christ. But the effect of sin in our lives, if not dealt with, it's it's over time, it it numbs our conscience. Scripture speaks of this as darkened minds, hardened hearts. There's there's something very serious that happens. There's a a progression of sin in these verses that Paul's, He's highlighting to you, he's saying there's, there's first the deadening, there's the following after other things, and then there's the enslaving of that sin, and then there it becomes an identity change, where we move from an image bearer to a sons of disobedience. And it's tragic. It is, it's awful. And if you feel like the weight of this, yeah, it's, this is awful. Like the effects of sin is awful. And it's all around us. Thirdly, it affects our relationship with others. When we turn away from God, we turn inward. Which also then means a turning away from others. It becomes about us. In God only, there is unity of the Spirit. That's, that's talking about right relationship with others. What is Adam and Eve after 
after they sin, what's their initial response after they sin and they allow it into the world? First, they hide. And the very next thing they do is they blame one another. They've turned inward and then they begin to blame one another. Because see, if, if, I, if I turn away from God, God is no longer God. That's, that's part of what it means to turn away from God. Something else is now God. I know better. I've made myself God. Therefore, meaning there's no one else is God. It's about me. And so those who threaten my desires, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push them away. I'm going to put them down because it's about me. And the fourth way that it destroys relationship is our relationship to the world. In the fall, Adam and Eve, they abdicated their responsibility. They had authority of stewardship that God had given them. And instead, they listened to Satan. And ultimately, they gave him authority over the earth. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. Paul calls him the power, the ruler of the power of the air. So there is a dominion that has been given to Satan through sin. Everything that we were meant to steward because of sin is now under sin, death, and decay. Everything is bound to it. That's why it says in Romans 8, creation is groaning. Creation itself is waiting for redemption, for renewal, for the work of God. Because creation fell when we fell. When, when Cain kills Abel, the first murder on this earth, it says there in Genesis that his blood cries out from the ground. The, the, the very ground, earth, the created earth that God had created, which was perfect and good and right. It says now that ground had to absorb the death of Abel. It was never meant to. This world was never ever meant to absorb the blood of anything. And you think about this. All the sin, all the death, all the destruction in the world, everything that happens, all, all the natural disasters, all of it, all the blood that's shed on this earth, it all comes back to sin. Third reason why sin is such a problem. Sin is multidimensional in nature. There's, there's actually so many words for sin in the Hebrew and the Greek that we would have to spend months looking at all of them. Like what, we, what you see in Scripture is the writers of Scripture are wrestling and grappling with the complexity of sin and what it's done to mankind and to humankind. It's serious. It's not just individual. And that's, that's something that we maybe don't think about a lot about. It's not just individual. It's corporate. God doesn't just see you as an individual. Now, our culture tells you that, but God doesn't see us just like that. God sees us as part of people groups. God sees us as part of nations. You look at Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement for Israel. What was that? Yom Kippur is collective repentance. 
Nehemiah, when Nehemiah comes to rebuild the temple, Nehemiah didn't have anything to do with the destruction of the temple, the sin that had led to it. But Nehemiah, in that, he prays and he puts himself in with the people and says, we have sinned. Nehemiah understands there's a, there's a collective corporate nature to it that we have responsibility for. I think that this can help us to understand our responsibility when it comes to racial issues and the responsibility that our nations bear for it that we are a part of. Now, yes, are racial issues right now complex? Are they politically charged? Is there all sorts of agendas? Yes. But there's a corporate responsibility that has to happen if we're going to walk in repentance and reconciliation. Sin is also a condition of the heart. It's not just the act. It starts with a thought. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking to the condition of our hearts there over and over again. He says, your anger, it's, it's not ultimately about what you did. It's about what it, where it began as a thought. Your, your lust, adultery, it begins with a thought. Sin infects and involves our entire person. If you look at the seven deadly sins, which were, was brought about by the early church, pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, sloth, meaning without care, Notice that all those sins, they all begin as internal sins. Every single one of those things that begins with thoughts and emotions in us before they are acted upon. And when you look at the seven deadly sins and, and, and scholars and, and theologians have grappled with this over years, they're saying like the desires and the beliefs, we, only, we see that we actually only have variable control over these things in our lives. We feel this. We feel the the pull of sin in our lives. It can almost feel involuntary. Paul talks about this at length in Romans 7. Like like the the stuff that I don't want to do, I end up doing. If you read the end of Romans 7, it's, it's a complex but clear explanation of the seriousness of sin that Paul is grappling with. He says there in Romans 7, he says, no, he, he says, nothing good dwells in my flesh. Nothing. So sin is at the core of our being, revealing our nature. Verse 3, it says that we are by nature. That's what Paul's talking about there when he says it's, sin is revealing our nature. By nature, our very nature, we're children of wrath. Meaning sin permeates every part of our being. Sin is not an act. Sin is an ongoing condition. We have inherited a sin nature. Just ask every single parent. Sinning comes very, very naturally to children from a very young age. One of the first words that kids learn, mine. I want it. Give it. You don't give it to me, I am going to physically harm you if you don't give it to me. Kids do that very naturally. Fleming Rutledge says this, sin is a demonic power that enslaves us, binds us, and prevents us from being free and good. We are responsible and yet we are unable to liberate 
ourselves. In Ephesians 2 there, the literal Greek phrasing of what Paul's saying there is that we are dead men who are walking. It's where we get the phrase dead men walking when you've got someone who's on death row and they have been sentenced to death. Yes, they are alive, but they are a dead man walking. That's the literal what Paul's speaking of here. In verse 2, Paul says, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, he's actually at work in sin. And we've all felt this. When, When we allow sin to operate in us, when we allow sin to be present, it actually can feed you. It can energize you. You can actually stew in sin, and it can actually, you actually think it's making you feel better. You're getting even. Even if it's just in your own thoughts. There is a demonic energy to sin. And that is because Satan is at work within it. And giving way to it will lead us to be led by it, Paul says. I, I recognize this, this, is not, like, this can come as hard for us because this is not talked about in culture. Like, I feel this. There's a heaviness to this of the reality of the effects of sin. And we've been conditioned now for already a long time to not even think about this. Just talk about how the heart is good. It's all about goodness. There is grave danger for us to disregard sin and its threat to us. Either with theology that minimizes it or with buying into the secular denial of it like it just doesn't exist fourth reason why sin is such a problem is that it's multi-dimensional in its consequences sin is destructive not only in the life of the person committing the sin, or being led by sin. It breaks down their life, yes, but it also hurts others around them. We see this all the time, that sin has both a direct impact, it has an indirect impact. Sin has a domino effect in many situations. It has a compounding effect, if you will. There's, it elicits compounding reactions. You know, it's like the ripple effect of a stone. You throw it on a clear lake, and you see that ripple effect of skipping the stone. That's what sin can do. We see this in families where it's so harmful and tragic in the ways that sin works. Generation after generation. And, and, you, and it seems that people in the midst of it, they can be blind to it. And they try to classify it and rephrase it as good and, and all sorts of things. It's like, are they maybe darkened in their minds? We, we see this on the account, in the account of God's people where the spies go into the land and they, a few of them come back and they're just riddled with fear. God's told them to go and take the land. Clearly, I'll be with you. Take the land. A few of the spies come back. They say, we can't do this. And the nation of Israel as a whole, they buy into that and it leads them to have to be in the desert wandering for 40 years because they allowed the sin of a few to go throughout all of them. You could pick up a whole bunch of examples from Scripture if you wanted to. The ways of this world, they give rise to the passions of 
our flesh, Paul says, your desires, impulses, cravings. So this, this is where the effects and, and ripples of sin and culture, they actually lead to widespread practices, to customs, to systems that are following the ways, the course of this world. They're actually built upon sinful practices. Sin permeates culture. We, we've actually created like just hundreds of ways, if not more, of, of, to gratify our impulses. There's all sorts of systems that we've created to gratify impulses. Now, like, I appreciate a Big Mac as much as anyone. I love to have a Big Mac from time to time. But you know what? Have you ever wondered, why is there fast food on like every, almost every corner in cities? Think about that. Because at any time when you have a craving or an impulse that you want to eat that, do it. Eat it. You could, I mean, you can make the same example for coffee. It's everywhere. We joke about it. We joke about our addiction to coffee. No big deal. Now, those are maybe, those are kind of funny examples. But there's many, many harmful industries that are serving the desires of our culture and the desires of our flesh. They're everywhere. And so the effects of sin, how it seeks to gratify our flesh and our cravings, I would put forth is woven into the very fabric of culture. Consumerism, it it facilitates idol worship with such ease. And we think nothing of it. It's just, it's become part of how we operate and live. Ephesians 4.27, it speaks there of not allowing sin to give a foothold to Satan. Not letting him get that foot in the door to get into our lives. Because, why, does, why does Paul say that? Well, one reason would be we're created to have dominion. We're created to be stewards of God's good gifts. And sin gives Satan a place in our lives. He has an in. Ephesians 6, Paul talks about principalities and powers. And we'll, we'll use that. We'll talk about principalities and powers quite a bit to, and we'll pray against it. We'll pray against the principalities and powers at work in our world, and we should. But do we ever examine if those principalities and powers might actually be at work in our lives? Are they, could they actually be present in us? In our society, they're all over the place. Sins that are institutionalized, sins that are legalized, they're inherited by future generations, they're passed down. Scripture speaks of of sin being passed down generationally, abuse, trauma. It's horrible. It's awful. You think about people groups all over the world that have experienced trauma. The black people in the U.S. have experienced unbelievable trauma. All you have to do is listen to a few stories and you begin to see, even very recently, of what has happened. Indigenous people in our nation, huge amounts of trauma to just kind of just go, ah, that doesn't matter, get over it. That is not understanding the impact of sin in this world and the work of sin in culture. Because it's important to understand that sin is a thing in Scripture. 
It's not simply actions and behaviors. It's actually a thing. And if not dealt with, Paul says it will rule, it will dominate, it will eventually enslave us. And so our only hope is Christ. That leads me to the last reason why sin is such a problem. And that is because the only solution was the brutal death of the only person who didn't sin. We cannot save ourselves from sin. We cannot educate ourselves out of sin. And we cannot rescue ourselves out of sin. We have no power. Everything that we've talked about this morning, everything we've considered, we have no power to get ourselves out of that mess. When we're prone to minimize or legitimize sin, we need to remind ourselves that the only way to deal with sin was the brutal, brutal death of Jesus. But there's a lot of good news in there for us. Right? Because there's freedom, there's forgiveness, there's redemption through Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is like when you begin to understand, when we begin to understand the gravity, the depth, and the seriousness of sin, that is why the gospel is such incredible news. It is not, the gospel is not a light thing. It's not something to add to your life. It is the only thing that can save you. The only thing. We had no hope. We were without God. We're dead in sin. It is serious. But God. That is why we can't quickly just move past these verses into Paul just get to grace and mercy and love yes understand the depth of what was needed even when we were against him Paul says in Romans God sent Jesus to die for us like you were against him you were opposed to him how can we as deeply flawed as we are with sin, be made right before God. How can that even possibly happen? Because the problem of sin, yes, it's pretty heavy, it's brutal, it's awful, and if not brought with before God and dealt with, sin will separate us from God. Sin will separate people from God both now and for all of eternity. So please do not allow the influence of culture to convince you that sin isn't an issue. That it's some made up sort of religious idea. To help us put this before the Lord this week, I want to I actually give us some opportunity to observe and map sin this week. Both around you and in your environment. Asking yourself, where is it present? Where is sin systematized? Like, where is the system of sin operating around me? Where do I see that? Where do we see Ephesians 2, 2 active around us? Because I want us to, to pay attention so that we come to see that the reality of sin in our world, that this is what we're reading, that this is truth, that we really actually need a Savior. 
Then I want to invite you after that to do a sin diagnostic on yourself and confession on yourself this week. So here's, here's what this looks like. Three times daily, I'd encourage you, three times daily, stop, pause, and pray. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where it says, Search me, O God. Show me if there's anything in me that grieves you. And just wait. Wait for the Lord to show you. And when God shows you something, just repent, confess, and thank Him for that promise to lead you in the way everlasting. I think it might be helpful to journal this. It's actually really helpful, I think, to, because it, you can actually track patterns in yourself. You might actually realize, wow, there's actually certain patterns of sin, of how I react, of, of what triggers me, of, of the things that I'm struggling with, and this is how it happens. You might actually, over even just a week, you may begin to realize, oh, this is the pattern. And we don't think about that as sometimes, we don't realize that unless we're actually writing it down and journaling it. And I want to suggest there's freedom in diagnosing our sin patterns and repenting quickly. There's a lot of freedom in that. Getting it into the light. You might want to share it with your spouse. You might want to share it with the person you're walking in accountability with. I want to encourage you to, no sin is too small. No sin is too small that it's nothing. Because all sin separates us from God both now and in eternity. Sin is serious. So we're going we're gonna to enter into communion now this morning and we're going we're gonna to have a time to come before the Lord. You can come up, Jen. We're going we're to ask the Lord this morning. We're going to have an opportunity to ask him to forgive us and cleanse us from the sin that Hebrews 12 says clings so closely to us. And it begins with recognition of our deep need. Shedding ourselves of performance Christianity. Just not getting away from that. Dallas Willard, he, he speaks actually of how little awareness there is in the church today of being lost, of the radical evil in our hearts, bodies, and souls. He says, which we need God to deliver us from. And he says, and yet we might actually even be regarded as mentally unstable if we talk too much about this. This is what he says about it. He says, yet without this realization of our utter ruin and without the genuine revisioning and redirecting of our lives, which, this bitter, which that bitter realization naturally gives rise to, no clear path to inner transformation can be found. It is psychologically and spiritually impossible talking about sin is not on my top 10 favorite sermon titles series focuses this is not something that I'm like can't wait to do this it's difficult to have to think about I recognize that and yet it's imperative that we're dealing with it in our lives if we are serious about pursuing spiritual formation in Christ You can't disregard the issue of sin. Ephesians 2 goes on to speak of of the mercy and the great love of God that saves us. And then it speaks of the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. 
says in Ephesians 2.10. That's the work of spiritual formation in us that God has prepared for us. And then it says in Ephesians 2.13, it goes on. It says that we who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. When we begin to understand the depth of sin, the problem that it presents, that verse that we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, I want to suggest that verse comes alive. That you read that verse when you understand the depravity and the situation laid out in verses 1 to 3, you understand verse 13 of Ephesians 2 in a totally different light. So we're going to partake of communion. The bread and the juice representing the blood and the body of Jesus sacrificed for us. This work of redemption that not only deals with our sin, but invites us to come and and be transformed progressively. We're being made to be more like Jesus. And so Daryl and Diane, we're going to do things a little bit different here this morning. I'll explain in a moment. But what we're going to do is, after we take communion, I want to invite you to um, do what, what I'm inviting you to do this week engaging and that is that to make room right now to come before the Lord Psalm 139 before us saying search me O God make me aware of any way in me anything in me that grieves you and as the Lord reminds you as the Lord brings that into your mind repent confess receive forgiveness receive the mercy of Jesus